It is so good to be here this morning with you. And I just want to say first, thank you for coming to church today. Because it's really powerful when you show up to worship. God's presence is even stronger because he lives in you. So, so it's definitely important that you are here. And I'm thankful for those that are here for the first time. Welcome. Um, I'm excited to get into the message today. And then go to the beach. Who's going to come? I'm excited. Yes, it's going to be nice. Did you tell them how many people were getting baptized? There's like 100 people registered. Right? I know. It's going to be amazing. And then there's another church showing up at 5 o'clock that is going to be baptizing too. So like we're just taking over Huntington today. That's going to be awesome. Anointed beach today. So let's pray, and we'll get right into the message. Thank you, Father, for your word, God. It's the rock on where we stand, God. It's our solid foundation. When this whole earth is shaking, God, we can be sure and steadfast, knowing that you are true, Father. I just thank you, God, that when we look into your eyes, when we read your word, God, we can be secure. We know, Father, that you're going to lead us with all wisdom and knowledge and grace and strength, Father. And we just thank you that every single person in here, Father, is going to receive your word this morning, not from me, but from the Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts, God, and you would speak what each person needs to hear, Father, for a genuine relationship with you. I just bless them in here today, and I just pray that you would have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you know, we have been going through the seven churches of Revelation since, like, March. <laughs> and part of the reason is because I don't preach every week, which I don't think I could because I study a lot when I, when I do a speaking. And I don't think I could do that every week. So, And plus, we have amazing pastors that come in and share the word. So you kind of get a variety here. If you're not familiar with our church, you never know who's speaking. Um, but today, I'm going to finish up the series in the seven churches, and then I'm going to pray about going through the rest of the Revelation. I think I'm going to do it, but I'm really going really to hold on to Holy Spirit, because after chapter three, Revelation gets, whoo, intense, <laughs> okay? So pray with me, and, um, and it should be fun. But this we're on the seventh church, which is Laodicea, and there was so much last week that I had to cut it in half because I knew I couldn't keep you here an hour and a half. So we're going we're gonna to just go through the last part of Laodicea, um, and I want to just give you a refresher course and some information that maybe I didn't talk about last week. Laodicea is from the word Laodikikius, and I try to pronounce it. I practice it at home, but when you actually have to say it on the microphone, it all get jumbles, gets jumbled again. But laos means people, and um, diki means right as self-evident, that is justice, the principle of the decision or its execution. So you combine these two words, and laodicea is like a mindset of a people that rule or judge or decide for themselves. Isn't that, in- isn't that interesting? Because they were clueless, remember? Jesus said, you don't even know that you're blind, naked, poor, wretched. You don't even know that because they have decided for themselves that they were wealthy, that they had everything they wanted. They didn't need anything. They didn't need any help. They certainly didn't need Jesus to show up, right? They took care of themselves. But how many of us know there are circumstances that happen in our lives that it doesn't matter how much money we have in the bank. 
right? It doesn't matter what we see in the natural. We need him. We need a word from God. We need his presence. And that's what Jesus is saying. I want to be with you. And so this lukewarm church had to learn that they were actually ineffective and totally unaware that they needed Jesus. So we're going to review Revelation 3 and 17 and 18, just to kind of get everybody on the same page if you weren't here last week. So it says in 317, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of anything, that's the key phrase, no need of anything, and you do not know that you are wicked, wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. Now, Jesus is not saying you are not saved. He didn't say that they weren't going to make it to heaven. He just said they were in a really bad spot. They were in a really unhealthy, right, area of life. They just were not healthy. Um, They had the mindset of being in need of of nothing. Like we talked about, they were uber rich. They had a banking industry, a garment industry, a pharmaceutical industry. And they they were the first city to actually have um, plumbed running water, which we know from history it ended up being lukewarm. Because they tried to bring it from hot springs, and then they tried to bring it from cold springs. But by the time it got there, it was lukewarm, and it tasted disgusting because the minerals that were in the pipes that they made, the clay pipes that they were made. So Jesus was using all of these words to really help them understand that he knew them. He knew that what they were going through. He was a personal God right in their situation. Um, And that they had a problem, they were clueless, and they were depending on their own efforts. So in 18, it says, Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to apply to your eyes so that you may see. Jesus, I love this verse, because I like to be told what to do. Anybody else in here? Like, I know, it doesn't seem like it, but like, just tell me what to do. I feel better when I have a list of things I need to do and accomplish, right? If I have to figure it out on my own, it's too hard. Just tell me what to do. Jesus told them what to do. And he just, it was plain, right? He just told them what to do, and that brought comfort to them. But what he's saying is he's saying, depend on me. And so this week, we're going to start finish off the chapter and... Um, this message in Laodicea has really kind of been a little comforting to me because I was always fearful that I was Laodicea. Anybody ever feel that way? Like nobody wants to be the church of Laodicea, right? Because they're lukewarm and they get spit out of Jesus' mouth. And so it's, I always thought that being lukewarm was the end. But what Jesus is saying, that being lukewarm is way, it's way worse to be in denial about it right? Like, what if we're lukewarm and we just don't even know it? That's the danger. And so that's why it's been so good to study this, because what he's showing us in this passage is that he loves the church of Laodicea. He loves them. He is not just coming with a whip and, and, you know, spanking them all over. He's not. He's loving them. He's disciplining them like a parent who will do and say the hard things in order to bring order and discipline to their child's life. How many have had to do that before? Especially as they get older. It gets harder when you have to have the talk with an adult child, right? That's not fun. 
But sometimes it's necessary because you want them to live, right? You want them to be okay. In Revelation 3.19, that's the new scripture that we're going to head into. It says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Isn't that a good scripture verse? That word, that word rebuke is elegzo. Elegzo in the Greek. And it means to convince with solid, compelling evidence, especially to, to expose or to prove wrong. So this past Christmas, Adrian and I took the four grandkids, not the youngest one, but just the four, and we took them to a Christmas train about three hours away, and we stayed at this little boutique hotel. It was so cute. It had an indoor pool, and I was so excited. And so all four of the little grandkids, I have three three-year-olds and a, and a six-year-old now. She, I think she was five then. So a lot of kids, right? And so Adrian was still getting ready, and I'm like, well, I'm just going to take them to the pool. And we run down to the pool, and they are so excited. By the way, we didn't bring their floaties. So I'm, I'm right behind them, and one, two, three, four, they just jump in the shallow end of the pool, which wasn't so shallow. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So I'm trying to get in the pool, and there's a lady right there, and one by one, boop, 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 four of them. And they're like, oh, they couldn't, they couldn't keep their head over the water. It was only three feet deep, but when you're like two and a half feet tall, right? So I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And the lady is like, ah, ah, and we're all just grabbing kids. And I was like, what, you guys, listen, right now. I said, go sit down. You know, they heard my rebuke. I was upset. They never heard Lala talk like that. I mean, I was the mom. The mom came out, right, that Dominic and Dion knew so well. But, but they were like, Lala, they were rebuked. I said, listen, who goes in the pool first? They said, Lala goes in the pool first. I said, listen, who goes in the pool first? And one by one, I made them say it and look me in the eye, right? You do not go in the pool until Lala's in the pool. And one by one, they had to recite it. And I think we did it about 100 times, no joke, <laughs> because I was so scared. Four of them with just me. So that is a, such a good example of how Jesus feels about us. He sees us drowning. He sees us sinking. He sees us totally unaware of the danger that we're about to get into. And he's saying, hey, look at me. You are lukewarm. It's time to correct. It's time to get this. Yeah. Isn't it? And he says it, be zealous. He says, therefore, be zealous and repent. And that word zealous comes from the root word zilu. And it means to bubble over because it's so hot, it's boiling. Isn't that good? Like, no more lukewarm. Be zealous. Boil. Boil for Jesus. It says to be deeply committed to something, to be earnest, and to set one's heart on, to be completely intent upon. Nothing else in our life but Jesus. That's it. It's all Jesus. I read something on Instagram today by Breitbart or something that said, America is full of believers they believe in angels, and they believe in a higher power, and they believe in this, and they believe in that. I'm like, no, they need to believe in Jesus. Because you can believe in a higher whatever, and unless his name is Jesus, you might get it wrong. Right? Because, yes, you will get it wrong, because Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's it. 
Jesus wants us to respond to his correction and his love and feel it deep in our souls. He wants our desire to be for him and, to, and for his love towards us. And he wants us to repent. And there's that word, repent. Repent. It's so, it's so good when you look at this word. It's meditant, metanu. Oh, sorry. Metananu, something like that. But it's changed after being with. Isn't that good? It's think differently after. After what? After being with someone. After a change of mind to repent, to think differently afterwards. It's more than saying, I'm sorry. It's more than getting down on our knees and saying, I'm sorry, I'm a horrible person. I mean, that works sometimes, right? But it doesn't work fully. We can be sorry, but we need to repent. It's an ongoing work. It's not just a one-time thing either. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says, And we are taking every thought captive to what? To the obedience of Christ. Obedience is after you repent, you obey, right? It's the turning. It's the turning towards. It's like making my mind obey what he says. But for this church, repentance wasn't easy because they hadn't been with Jesus. They were so busy doing life, business, success, they didn't realize that he wasn't even around. And that is what's so heartbreaking. So if repentance is to change after being with, they needed an encounter with Jesus. They needed an encounter with Jesus. And isn't that what this generation needs? They need an encounter with Jesus. They don't need to go to church necessarily. Unless Jesus is there. Oftentimes, right? Oftentimes he may not be. And this is exactly what he wanted to give them, an encounter with him. The next verse, it goes into Revelation 3.20. Jesus is speaking. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This word knock actually means to beat the door. It's to strike it. It's to knock with a heavy blow. When do you knock like this? When it's urgent. When you need somebody open up quick, right? When you need to get their attention. When you need to let in now. And that's the kind of of knock it is. what he's doing he's saying i want your attention let me in i want to be in your life every day every moment and i'm sorry babies if i scared you <laughs> jesus is saying if anyone hears my voice is anyone listening you okay everybody okay 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 i'm sorry <laughs> he was here earlier for the test. <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> I should have gave everybody a heads up. <laughs> but is anyone willing to open the door? He wants to dine with us. And he wants us to dine with him. He wants communion. That word talks about a supper. Dine. Some translations say share a meal. He wants to have dinner with us. He wants us to eat together. And culturally and spiritually, the evening meal was a huge deal. It was a huge deal. You can see it all through the scripture when they talk about the banquets. What is that? It's my phone. The banquets and the, the um, dining and the dinners that he was inviting people to. The wedding feast, right? The dinner is a big deal. Culturally, they didn't do fast food. <laughs> they didn't eat on the run. The dinner was like a celebration of a hard day's work. You know, family doing their thing and coming together with neighbors and, and celebrating each other. Actually, it was very religious. Every religious and political and social event centered around an evening meal. This was really interested, interesting when I studied this. Even their church services were an evening meal. It was called the Dipnon. It was called the Dipnon. It was a social institution similar across the regions and ethnicities of the time period and all over the Bible. Adrian spent a lot of time in the Middle East, and they still have this tradition. They still have this tradition where they all gather and they communicate with one another and they share their life together. Some of you in life groups do the same thing. And it's really how church was originally supposed to be. Here's a breakdown of how it went. The Greco-Roman banquet typically had two well-defined courses. It was, first of all, the Depnon proper, the first table, they called it. And then there was the symposium, the second table. And so the dinner at the first table starts with an invocation to the gods, or like us, we do now, we pray, right? Thank you, Jesus, for this food. Please bless it. Amen. Depending on what your family does. But they did that, but they did that to other gods too. This was, this was something culturally that Jesus was speaking to the church. They knew exactly what he was saying. He wanted to come in to their communication, into their community, into their relationships. He wanted to be the one that they prayed to, right? And so for the gods or the pagans or to God as Christians, but after the dinner, there is a break and then the new guests can arrive and the house gods and the geniuses of the host and the emperor are invoked and a sacrifice is given. Do you see how religious it is? It's like a ceremony. It's like, it's like worship to them. People recline again and eat and drink at the second table, often not only um, sweet desserts and fruit, but also spicy dishes or seafood or bread are served. The second table ends with a toast for the good spirits of the house. The tables are removed, the floor is swept, and then they start their libra libations with wine, right? So it's just a huge, huge thing that happens with, with these dinners. They, they give libations, it's sacrificed, they, they have drinking, they converse, they entertain themselves. And for the Christians who were following Jesus now, their end of the service looked like, end of the dinner looked like they were worshiping. They were singing. They were teaching one another. They were reading the word like David. They were prophesying like Diane. They were bringing all of this rich presence of the Lord to each other in this last part of the dinner. And Jesus says, I want to be there. I want to be involved. 
I want to be able to speak into your life. I want to be honored. I want to be worshiped, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. So this gives us a picture to what he was referring to when he pounds on the door to our life. He wants to be involved in our community, in our conversation, in our learning, in our adoration. He wants to be our honest, get, our honored guest. He wants to be remembered. It made me think this week about communion. It's like communion didn't look like we, it looks like when we do it. When we all stand face forward, don't look back, take your little paper, drink, you know, your, I say paper, because sometimes it tastes like paper, right? The little wafers. Like, give me a hunk of bread, right? <laughs> Take your little paper bread and your juice and drink it and don't look around. No, their communion was like, tell me what Jesus did in your life today. What is he doing? What is he speaking to you? Let me speak over you. Let me declare over you. I see life in you. You know, like there was so much more richness in their communion. And then when he shows up, here's a homework verse, Isaiah eleven two. When Jesus shows up, read that scripture verse, study it. I've been like just meditating on it for weeks now. The seven spirits of God were laid on him, rests on him. So when Jesus comes in, what else comes in? The almighty God, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of discernment, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of the fear of the Lord and the spirit of Yahweh. He comes in, all of that comes in with Jesus. We need all of that right now. Especially, especially as transhumanism keeps moving forward so quickly, as AI keeps moving forward so quickly, you don't think you need the wisdom of the Lord? Right? We need him every single moment of the day. And kids, you do too. There's no junior Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is with you and inside of you to teach you and to show you and to say, oh no, that's not God. That's not God. He will put something in your heart and in your spirit that you can see and you can hear. Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. And we won't play the sound again. (laughs) But that promise wraps up all the promises to the churches, not just to Laodicea. I want to come in and be with you. In Revelation 3.21, and this is the finished part of the promise, he says, the one who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. That is an extravagant promise to all of us, isn't it? Jesus is focused now on the future. He turns their attention to it and he says, you will overcome. Overcome, just a quick reminder, it means victory, prevail, conquer, subdue. It's where we get the word Nike, right? It's the victor. But what are they overcoming? What are they overcoming? For Laodicea, it, were, it was the ones who kept the fire amidst the tepid Christianity around them. Can you keep that fire? Can you? Can you keep that fire when, ev- when culture around you says, oh, you're doing enough. Oh, that's fine. You can do this. Not a big deal. Whatever. 
What is Holy Spirit saying to us, right? We have to get to know his voice. So we're not schooled and, and taught by culture. There's something really amazing with this verse that I want to ask you to try to gain this perspective. The writer of this verse is John, right? The apostle John, who was a disciple of Jesus, and he was one of his best friends. The Bible said he had three closest to him, and John was possibly the closest. He calls himself the one Jesus loved in the book of John. So you know he had a pretty good relationship with him, right? Well, John is writing this, and he first heard Jesus say, I have overcome in the book of John, in John 16. Chapter 14, 15, and 16 are all a huge conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room at the meal, by the way. And he was telling the disciples all of the things that he was going to have to go through. He was going to be betrayed. He was going to be denied. He was going to be taken, right, from them. And in verse 16 through 33, John says this. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So John had a memory of Jesus saying this. And that memory was connected with what Jesus would walk into the next hour, the next day. So John knew that overcoming looked like going to the cross. John knew that overcoming looked like going into the Garden of Gethsemane and saying, God, if you can, take this cup from me. He knew what overcoming was. And I think that that was one thing he was trying to get across to the Laodiceans. Do you really know what overcoming is? Do you really know that overcoming is dying to yourself? That make, making your soul and your body subjected to the Spirit and to the Holy Spirit and to God's will for our life, regardless of what we want? That's what, that's what John was trying to express because he knew firsthand. A commentary in this um, explained, it says this, I overcame, but from the world's point of view, he was utterly beaten. He was misunderstood. He was rejected. He lived a life of poverty, died when he was a young man, a violent death, was hunted by all the church dignitaries of his generation as a blasphemer, spit on by soldiers, execrated after his death, and that is victory, is it? Jesus declared it was. Well then, the commentator says, we shall have to revise our estimates of what is a conquering career. If he, the pauper martyr, if he, the misunderstood enthusiast, if he conquered, then some of our notions of a victorious life are very far astray. Right? Right? What is a victorious life? We hear the bells and whistles. We see the lights and the smoke, right? But Jesus showed us what a victorious life was. He showed us. 
And back in that verse, we read a little bit quickly, he said, but take courage. I have overcome the world. That's not the one I was talking about. Revelation 3.21, he says, as I also overcame. It's clear. Revelation 3.21, it says, as I also overcame. John knew how he overcame. So Jesus is not promising us all the bells and whistles. He's promising us the garden with tears, the surrendered will, the cross, dying to ourself. That's what he's promising us. And because of that, we get eternal life, right? We get salvation. Our notion of overcoming, we can correct. And in the midst of trials and tribulation, we can overcome because Jesus overcame. And I know this is a heavy message. I know I didn't want to preach it. I didn't want to speak it. And I certainly don't want to like do anything with it, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to die to myself. I think sometimes it's even easier, like put me before a firing squad. That would be way easier than saying sorry to my husband. <laughs> I mean, seriously, right? It is. Because to die to ourselves when we're jealous and we shouldn't be, when we're prideful and we shouldn't be, right? When we're thinking and gossiping things we shouldn't be saying, like that's harder sometimes than being persecuted. But Jesus is saying, overcome the world. Like I overcame the world. In Revelations 3.22, and we're going to head towards closing. It says, the one who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we can correct, we can pay attention, we can open the door, we can invite Jesus in. And I believe Laodicea did. And I believe his church in the last days will. His church has an ear. If you haven't seen the focus on Jesus lately, the church is the church is falling in love with Jesus again. They're falling in love with him. Like, just want his presence. That's it. Just want you, Jesus. You could have everything. You could have my will. You could have my food. You could have anything. I just want you in my life, right? And it's happening more and more every day. More and more every day. The church is going to correct. His bride is going to be ready. We will choose Jesus. So what happened to Laodicea? There's not much in history. I've looked. <laughs> I studied. I just found a little bit. I wanted to give you an update. Church history records that the church in Laodicea remained dynamic after most of the churches in Asia disappeared. So they seem to have corrected. One of the bishops was martyred for his faith in AD 161, about 70 years after this letter was written. About um, A.D. 363, Laodicea was the location chosen for a significant church council. So church councils were um, necessary because a lot of people were trying to figure out, like, who Jesus was. And, you know, they're trying to figure out which books should go in the Bible and just all of these things. And some people would get off, 
You know, they would just get off in their doctrine. So there were heresies. And this council specifically, I believe, and I might be wrong, but gathered so that they could correct some of those heresies that were happening in the church. So Laodicea seemed to have learned their lesson. And God continued to bless the Christian community there for some time. So we have a choice today, right? We have a choice to be zealous and repent of our lukewarmness, to answer the door and invite him into our lives. Can you stand with me? <clears throat> There's a scripture verse I want to share with you. In 1 John 5, 4, it says, Whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And I want to ask today as we begin to worship and we're going to open the altars for prayer, do you have faith? Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you believe that he's the son of God? Do you believe that he says who he, he is who he says he is? Because Jesus is the one that we have to profess on our lips. We can't just profess, oh, we all have higher power. No, Jesus is the way to God. And he's not going to let anyone else take that place. So if we all close our eyes, I want to ask a question. If you need to ask Jesus to come into your heart today, and you want a real relationship with him, you want to make him Lord of your life. You want to lay it all down. You want to start new. Man, you could get saved today and then go get baptized in a few hours. <laughs> it would be an amazing celebration day. So if that's you today, can you just slip up your hand? Nobody else is really looking around. Can you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? Thank you. Thank you. Let's all pray together. Amen. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you that he died for me. Thank you that his blood washes all of my sins away. Thank you that you will become the Lord of my life today <laughs> as I surrender it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are a new creation in Jesus. Brand new. Brand new. And as we close, I want to open up the altars. And if we could have some altar ministers come up and just be ready to pray for those that might need prayer. There's also room up here just to have an experience with Jesus. And I want to invite you to do that as well. But can we worship out? <laughs>